This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, as, as we're journeying toward uh, Easter through the season of Lent, we decided that we would look at a few words, uh, a few words that we think are central to our faith. I even threw that out there to you guys a few weeks ago, and I've got dozens, probably close to 100 responses back. Um, I think a thing I asked you to do was give me the six words that you think are most central to the Christian faith, and obviously these words reflect ideas, properties, things that are real and important to us. And so we've called this series a vocabulary of faith, and it may even extend into the season of Eastertide after Easter because we know there are more than six words that are important to us. But three weeks ago, let's see, we had snow last week, and then we had Greg Boyd the week before. So it was the week before that we began the series in earnest, and the first word was the word God. It just seems obvious in any religious system, that's where you would start. Most religious systems are theistic, so God seemed the obvious place to start. So we spent a week on God, and this week, which is the second of the series, it follows for me, at least logically, it follows that the second word would be the word Jesus. Uh, That just makes sense to me. Because from our earliest days uh, as a movement, Christians are those who believe that the decisive revelation of God, not the exclusive revelation of God, but the decisive revelation of God is a person. God most decisively revealed God's self uh, in this person that we know as Jesus. Now we also believe that God reveals God's self through other humans. He reveals himself through nature. God reveals Uh, the divine nature through science, through tradition, through experience, through reason, all sorts of ways. And for a lot of us, all of those things are not separate from Jesus, but they are, in a sense, cosmically, holistically, Jesus. That, That it's not just God who's revealed through a needy person, but Jesus said, as much as you've done it unto them, you were doing it to me. You actually met them, you met God sacramentally, you met Jesus sacramentally in another human being. So wherever God is revealed, for me, to some extent, that comes under the umbrella, the arching umbrella of, of Jesus. Jesus is in all things, was created by all things, and is so much more than just one human life that lived 2,000 years ago. So. We are those who believe that the decisive revelation of God is a person. And for us, Jesus reveals God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, I think Greg Boyd a couple of weeks ago uh, used this same passage, but look at it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and he did this many times and in many different ways. So God's always been about the business of disclosure. That's one of the I think the keynotes, the linchpins of the Judeo-Christian faith, and that is that we have a disclosing God. God comes and reveals God's self. So God spoke in many different ways through the prophets, but now in these last days, and I'll tell you how I feel about that. I feel like from the revelation of Jesus on, those are the last days, whether those days summate in 2,000 years or they take another 50,000 years. Um, I don't necessarily have a sense that we have to put a timeline on what last days mean. I think we could be around another 50,000 years or another 200,000 years, and I'm 
Sorry if that scandalizes anybody. I personally have a sense that these are the early days of Christianity. I really do. Uh, if these are the final days of Christianity, I would be so disappointed that we've only made it this far in our process. What I see happening in Christianity today feels to me like the early stages of Christianity. And in the 13.7 billion year old universe, I think from the grand scheme of things, we could very well say these are the early days of Christianity. And I think that we are growing into the fullness. I mean, Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he said he's going to teach you all the things that I tried to teach you. And so with the resident spirit of God in us, I feel like we are ever in about that business of learning. And I think we're learning more about Jesus, frankly, as time goes on. So in the, um, in the last days, God has spoken to us through his son. So God has spoken to us through Jesus. Notice that word son. Son as identity. God has chosen his son to own all things. And through him, he made the world. Paul on multiple occasions said the world was made by him, and not only is the world made by him, but he's infused into that world. He's everywhere. And uh, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his Chronicles of Narnia, uh, when people from around the world came to Aslan, who was the type of Christ, and at the end of time they said, oh, Aslan, we didn't know it was you. And Aslan says, oh, you knew me. Today you learned my name. I, th I think that's true. I, I, I think the young... 16-year-old boy who's never heard the nomenclature Jesus and yet without the ability to swim jumps headlong into the freezing river to save his sister and loses his own life that's Jesus greater love hath no man than this than he lay down his life for his friend that because Jesus never said that he was a dogma a doctrine and a teaching Jesus said I am a way the truth and the life he is a truthful way of living and where people find that truthful way of living they have found Jesus and as Lewis pointed out later they learned that name just like I pointed out three weeks ago in Acts 17 when Paul told the polytheistic Athenians he said you worship this God that you call unknown you worship him today I would like to reveal to you his name so I think Christ is this overarching reality. And that's what John was saying in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. And the Word was then made flesh. So God has chosen through his Son to own all things, and through him he made the world. And I like this. The Son, Jesus reflects the glory of God and shows exactly what God is like. So for us... Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus reveals God, not all of God. But as Paul said, Jesus is a reflection of God's glory. And in him, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, we see in a, a dark glass. It's not a perfect mirror, but we see enough to see opaquely. We see general outlines. We may not see with acuity, but we see uh, the contemporary English version said, we see a cloudy picture of things, but we see through Jesus the most that we could possibly see. Later on, when we get to the end, whether that's 50 days from now or 50,000 years from now, later we will see God face to face. Now, I'll say this about Jesus. Part of the cloudiness of the picture is that we do not see in Jesus all of the characteristics of God. 
For example, we believe that God is omnipresent. Jesus in his physical body did not manifest omnipresence. Jesus in his person did not manifest all-knowing or omniscience. You remember Jesus said, I don't even know the hour I'm going to return. So if anybody's a little miffed at me for not knowing when the end times exactly are, I'm right there with Jesus. Jesus said, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Because part of God becoming a human in Jesus was the forfeiture of omniscience. So here's a good way of saying it. In Jesus, we don't see all of the characteristics like omnipotence. He forfeited his power when he came to earth, and even he relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to do his work. So we don't see in Jesus all of the characteristics of God, but we do see all of the character of God, and that's an important little statement. What we see in Jesus is not the fullness of characteristics in terms of the divine, but we see the fullness of character, and that character is love, and that is clearly revealed in Jesus. So while we have in Jesus a sufficient picture of God, I think ultimately what we see in Jesus, if Jesus is like God, I think ultimately what we see in Jesus is what a human life can look like fully lived. I think what we see in Jesus is what the human life was supposed to look like if it is realized and recognized and appropriated properly. I think in Jesus what we see is a story of a human being. God became flesh. And what we see in Jesus is God saying, this is what a human being fully actualized looks like. And in Jesus, we see the story of one human being wrestling with the issue of identity. In Jesus, we believe the spirituality of Jesus is about homecoming. The spirituality of Jesus is about identity. And as a full human being, Jesus lived this. He did not just instruct us abstractly about this, but instead of telling us, this is what you're going to do in your journey of coming home to yourself, this is what you're going to do in wrestling with your identity, instead of telling us these things, Jesus lived it himself. And that's the magnificence of the story of Jesus. So I'll say it like this. Today, if I knew I were leaving the earth and I had the opportunity to tell my kids one thing about Jesus, this is what I would tell them. There's a lot to tell, Wes, but if I had, to, that's what I thought. I, I don't, I'm not preaching a series on Jesus. I've got one message. What would I tell my children is the essential story of Jesus. Remember that old song, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. So the story of Jesus is a story of homecoming and identity, and to show you that, I'm going to uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to walk through just a few verses from each of the first four chapters. The Gospel of Luke tells this story of homecoming and identity in the story of Jesus like none other of the Gospels or any of the other uh, New Testament writings, I think. So let's start with Luke 1, and I want you to look at these texts through the idea of who Jesus was and also this matter of Jesus himself wrestling with who he was. Christmas story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. He was of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. 
But she was much perplexed by his words, and she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now watch this. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, underline son. God has chosen to reveal himself through his son. That's an office. That's a role. That's a, a part of his identity. You're going to bear a son, and you will, you're not going to get to name him yourself out of some lexicon of contemporary names. You and Joseph are not going to get to name him Joseph Jr., and you're not going to look through the most popular names and name him after a cousin or a hero or whoever. My cousin Caroline's here today. I'm named after her dad. My middle name is Ashley because some other poor guy got named Ashley <laughs> by his mom. And we are named, your dad and I are named after our uncle Philden, who's Philden Ashley. So the story is he was born in 1940 and we all know what movie came out in 39. Gone with the wind and there was a guy named Ashley so there was a rash of boy Ashleys. And now the honor is I've got 30 little girls in this church named after me. So, <laughs> and then I impose that on Stan Jr. You're not gonna get to name him, why? Listen, it's identity. He already has a name. He's had an identity and a name before the foundation of the world. He is who he is before he ever enters your womb. That's how rich the identity of Jesus was. He will be great, and he will be called the Son. There's that word again, Son, identity, Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be absolutely no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, again, back to this issue of identity, therefore the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called Son of God. So he's carrying identity of sonship into the world before he ever gets here. Luke picks that story up in the second chapter. Luke's the only one of the gospel writers who does this with Jesus somewhere between his birth and his public ministry that the other gospels record. Luke 2, remember the story of the 12-year-old Jesus? When they couldn't find him, just an aside, his parents who loved him most lost him. Anybody ever lost your kid somewhere? Anybody ever left church and realized you left your kid at church? I have. I work here, but it happens. It's a horrible thing to lose a child, right? You leave a restaurant, you get halfway down the road, and you're like, good Lord, we only have two. We're 50%. I mean, I, if you have seven or eight, you feel like it's reasonable, but it's happened to all of us. Well, his parents who loved him most lost him. Where did they lose him? In the temple. Quick aside, one of the easiest places to lose Jesus is the temple. Everybody, one of the easiest places to lose Jesus is the temple. Be reminded that your spirituality is facilitated, nurtured by the temple, but the temple is not your spirituality. And I can tell you there was a year of my life, Dwayne, where a year off from the temple was good for me. Love the church. I don't know anybody here loves the church, the institution of the church, more than I do. But sometime your reasons are particular to you, my reasons are particular to me. All this stuff like spirituality, religion, institutionalization, vocation for me can get tangled up 
I took a year off from the church and it was some of the best spiritual work that I ever did. And that's not because of the church, right? Anybody ever taken time off from the church? It happens. Because one of the easiest places to lose God is in the temple. One of the easiest places to find Jesus is in the temple. And I'm thankful that when I sorted things through, I was able to come back to the temple and lo and behold, guess who I found in the temple? Same one I lost in the temple. It's not about the temple, it's not about the church. It's so immature when you need that respite, when you need that season to blame it all on the church. It's not about the church. So when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days later, they finally discovered him. My Lord, you lose your kids 15 minutes at Target and it's a heart attack. They lost him three days. Think about that. They finally discovered him in the temple. You will generally find him where you lost him, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Now here's the word again. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to me? Richard Edinger told me, Richard often comes up to me between services and gives me some nugget that I haven't thought of. He said this refrain would be repeated by her 20 years later when she's standing at the base of the cross. Son, why have you done this to me? She was his mom. Simeon told her years earlier, the sword that pierces his side will pierce yours too. You have a child, you take your chest or you take your heart and you take your heart and put it outside of your chest and let it go walking around in the world. That's what Mary did. Son, but there's that word, son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic. We've been searching for you everywhere. And Jesus said, but why did you need to search? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house identity? Here's a man living in two worlds, exactly where all of us live. Here's a man with two fathers, two eternal parents. Here's a man that's trying to, a boy rather, 12 years old, trying to be responsible to one father while being responsible to the other father. This journey is a journey of two worlds commingled always trying to be faithful to both, sometime recognizing that one costs the other. Didn't you know? There was not an immediate, I'm sorry, mama, I shouldn't have done this. No, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? I have heard two fathers call me son. It's quite a journey, this navigation of two worlds, this navigation of two planes but they didn't understand what he meant and there was no way they possibly could. And I will tell you, when you get into the navigation of these two planes and when you start responding to inner voices and when you start responding to overarching calls, not always will those closest to you who love you dearly understand that call on your life. And you have to hear that voice deep enough to not expect those, even those who love you most, to understand what you're doing. And you have to respond somewhere between the voice of two fathers, somewhere between the voice of two planes. It's quite a navigation, John, this making of a soul. But they didn't understand, but because they didn't understand didn't mean they didn't love him, and it didn't mean he didn't love them. 
didn't mean they weren't in pain on both sides. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. And Jesus, look at this, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. He, he grew. God so subjected God's self to a human life that this wasn't for effect. When he was a baby learning how to count on his fingers, that was real. And when he was a 12-year-old boy wrestling with two identities and two planes of existence, that was real. And he didn't leave there with a perfected spirituality. He didn't leave there with a perfected perspective on this. But as a human being, God subjected himself to the process that you are going through. He didn't go through this process and periodically wink at the angels like it was all a big joke. No, God fully subjected God's self and Jesus left there wrestling with what it means to be the son of two fathers. Wrestling with how the identity, how am I faithful to God, my father, and simultaneously faithful to a father named Joseph. And he grew in wisdom and in stature. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we don't start in the Gospel of Luke with Jesus having all of this perfectly downloaded at 30 and telling us exactly how to live our life. What we actually have in Jesus is an example of what this looks like. It's the journey of the human soul. We wrestle with our identity. The third chapter takes that to another level. The third chapter now leaps 18 years and finds Jesus. Look at Luke 3, it finds Jesus at his baptism, baptized by his cousin John. In the scripture, do we have that? Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was open. Now notice, no ministry, he hasn't done one thing in the world yet in terms of healing blind eyes and lame legs and raising the dead. There's been no Sermon on the Mount, certainly no crucifixion and resurrection. And when Jesus had also been baptized and Jesus was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And here's the important part. And a voice came from heaven. And the voice said, you're my son. You are my child. You are the beloved. Nothing's changed. This is who you have been from the foundation of the world. This is who you were in the womb of your mother. This is who you were at 12 years old in the temple. And I want you to know right now, before you start anything, before you start being the loving one, I want you to know you're the beloved. And that's incredibly important. Before we actually can effectively be the loving one, we have to be the beloved. We only give out of that which has already been given to us. People who have a difficult time with loving are people who have a difficult time with appropriating their own belovedness. But to the extent that you appropriate your belovedness, you are filled to such a capacity with divine love that you simply become a steward of that belovedness. Loving people are stewards of their own belovedness. Unloving people are stewards of their own insecurity. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as you do yourself, we do. And if you love yourself poorly, you love your neighbor poorly.
to the extent that you appropriate belovedness, you love well. And I think it's incredibly important. I mean, at the end of Jesus' life, the voice from heaven could have said, you are my loving son. You have loved everybody well, including your enemies. But at the beginning, the father says, this is very important. Before you begin performing out of your role, before you begin filling your office of Messiah, I want you to know before you touch one blind eye, deaf ear, mute mouth, lame leg, I want you to know you are beloved. And the father doesn't say, by you, I am well pleased. No, the father says, with you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. Every now and then, a lad weak with growing. Every now and then, a lad weak with the pleurisy of soul that comes to every human being. Every now and then, he needs what I gave my boy the other day. When, when do you do it? Not nearly enough. But there was a moment, Brian, that I got a hold of him, put my hands on his shoulders, and there was immediately that awkwardness that comes with 16-year-olds because he's not that kid that I used to could touch so easily. But as he postured and stiffened himself like a two before, I squeezed those shoulders and I said, look at me. You're mine. Don't you ever forget it. I am proud of you. He looked down because as William Blake said, one of the great tests of life is to be able to endure the beams of love. To be able to endure our belovedness because there are so many raging voices inside. He looked down and I whispered, look at me. You are a good young man. I know your frailties better than anybody. You will be a lot of things in life, but I want you to know there is one thing you will always be, mine. Mine. And the shoulders softened and the concentric rings of life inside of him yielded in a three-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 16-year-old and a 34-year-old yet unborn laid his head on my shoulder and said, thank you, Dad. Jesus didn't simply tell us how to do that journey. He lived it. And on this day, wet with the waters of baptism, the Spirit descends, the crowds belong to him, and the Father says, listen, don't trust all of this. These people can wave palm branches one day and murder you the next. Listen to me. They will call you many things. They will call you friend. They will call you enemy. But listen to me. Whether friend or enemy, you are always one thing, mine. Beloved, and in you, not by you, in you, I am well pleased, and you don't have one thing to say about it. The Bible 
says that he went immediately from that place with that voice ringing in his ear. Luke 4 picks up the immediate story. And as he's driven from that place full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and led by that same spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days he was tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. And the devil, that voice said to him, if you are the son of God, it's a story of identity. If I could tell my one, one thing to my kids about Jesus, this, this would be the story. You want essential Jesus? Here it is. It's a story of identity. It's a story of understanding who you are and who you've always been and who you'll always be. And Jesus doesn't just tell the story, he lives the story. This is Luke 1, 2, 3, 4. And he began the book in Luke 1 by saying, I have made a very careful investigation to capture for you the true heart of Jesus. And boy, he does it right out of the chute. 1, 2, 3, 4. Son, 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 son. Mine, 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 mine. Child, 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 child. And now, not a baby. Now not a pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Now not a 12-year-old boy. Now not an 18-year-old growing into the wisdom of navigating two identities. Now a 30-year-old man wet with the waters of baptism, but now removed from all the voices that laud him as king. His cousin who decried, his cousin who cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I must decrease that he may increase. And they would have made him king. But life is the story of living through the process of having your belovedness tested. And immediately, the father did not take him from the waters of baptism to ministry. The Bible doesn't say that he left the waters of baptism and turned water into wine, left the waters of baptism and walked on water. No, no, no. He left the waters of baptism because this metal needed tempered. This metal needed steeled. Voices from heaven, epiphanies that come and safe confines such as these. Those experiences need tested by life. And the last thing that he had heard was from heaven and the voice said, you are my son, beloved. And the next voice he heard was from hell. And the voice said, if you are who God says you are, prove it. Because you know as well as I do that belovedness is not inherent, it's earned. You know as well as I do, Eve, God doesn't love you. He's playing you like a fool. The journey of humanity, the journey of Christian spirituality is the journey of homecoming. It's a journey of wrestling with identity. It's a journey of coming home to who we are. Because the voices from hell say, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. You've got to perform to justify your identity. You want to know what hell is? That's hell. 
Hell is the far country journey that we take, Johnny Lee said, looking for love in all the wrong places. You know the love we're looking for? We're looking for the belovedness of our own soul. We're looking desperately into every eye, every email, every business deal. We're looking desperately into the eye of every person we meet for the affirmation that reassures us we have worth and are beloved. And the voice from hell says, if you are the son of God, the voice of the father grips his shoulders and says, there is no if, you are the son of God and nothing can ever change that. You always have been, always will be, you're mine. And the voice from hell says, not true. We come erupting into this world with laughter and tears. Unabashed, we bruise ourselves and we batter ourselves. But the bruising and the battering of our unashamed naked bodies pales in comparison to the bruising and the battering of our soul. I watched, just like you have, Sandra, I watched my little girl get on a bus one day and move east of Eden. Naked and not ashamed was she. And within three days in the economy of a school bus, she whispers to me one night, Daddy, am I fat? And the serpent, Barbara, slithers in. And, and now she looks in a mirror, dubious to her worth. And the journey of a girl in Western society begins. If you are the daughter of God, look in the mirror again. If you are the child of God, look to your portfolio again. If you are a son of God, look deep into the eyes of those, your audience again. Do they approve you? Do they applaud you? Do they think well of you? The story picks up with a third temptation. Look at verse, I believe it's verse 9. Skip down. Jesus answered him, it's written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him on to Jerusalem, placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. If you are the son of God, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And there, on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Ha <laughs> ha. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. This needs no test. This needs no further definition. No wonder Jesus looks at grown women like my little girl Nina will become and whispers to them, except you become as a little child, you'll never experience the kingdom. Have you ever thought of this? Harry, when Jesus says to you, except you become as a little child, he's not talking about an abstraction. He's talking about a little boy named Harry. What other child would he be thinking about? Except you become as a little child, Glenn, he's got to be talking about us when we were. He's not saying, Stan, except you become as a little child, you know, that kid that Glenn was. No, he's, he's talking about that little boy that used to sing like nobody was listening, that used to dance like nobody was watching, 
and east of Eden became self-conscious and aware and in a deficit and a drought of soul begin to desperately look externally, extrinsic locuses of control for some sense of belovedness. When Jesus said, except you become as a little child, he knew what he was talking about because even he himself had to go back into his own child when he rested full and satisfied in the love of a father. This is what I would tell my children about the essential Jesus. His story is a story of identity. His story is a story of inherent belovedness. His story is your story. The last scripture I'll read is from the same, the same gospel, the gospel of Luke. And it's found in the 15th chapter. I often tell this story, but I wanna look at it afresh with you today before we go. Luke, the 15th chapter. Christian spirituality is about identity. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. I'll tell you why. Because Jesus had a way of nurturing intrinsic belovedness. And these people who felt worthless to society and themselves were drawn to Jesus because Jesus lifted them. Jesus gave them a sense that they were deeper, richer, better than the lives they were living. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now watch this. These people came to Jesus to have their belovedness nurtured. There was nothing about their life or the economy around them that nurtured their belovedness, but Jesus did. These low lives in terms of the way they conducted their life, they left Jesus feeling drawn up, brought up. And the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the religious folk, they were grumbling while this was happening, while people were having their belovedness nurtured and drawn out. The Pharisees and the scribes watched this with Jesus and they said, this fellow, this, this guy welcomes sinners and eats with them. How disgusting. Because these people are not even worth eating with, but we are. Why? Performance. They perform poorly, we perform well. I want to take issue with that. They really didn't perform well. For as Charles Spurgeon said, if you claim spiritual righteousness or religious perfection, it's highly likely that what actually is happening is all of your other sins are just standing off to the side to allow your religious pride plenty of room to develop to ruinous proportions. Two groups. And Jesus said, look at this. So he told them this parable. Skip down to verse 15. He told actually three parables, and I want to go to the last one um, to conclude. Oh, we got it? I don't think that's where I wanted to start. You know, I think we're going to start just bringing our Bibles again. There's something right about that. I never give them exactly the right verses. 
see if I'm a good preacher and can remember the first part of this story and just leave that there. So he told them another parable and said, watch this, there was a man, watch, watch now, who had two sons. Because the story was, they, there were two groups, right? Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, sons, identity. The younger one said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to be your son. I don't want you to be my father. This was incredibly out of order because the only way he should have gotten the estate is when his father died. So essentially in the Semitic world for a son to do this preemptively was to say, I want you dead. You are dead to me and I am dead to you. You are not, we are not going to continue a relationship. Here's what you are to me. I'm trading our relationship in for money. You are an inheritance to me. Give me the share of the property that will belong to me, that will, future tense, belong to me. I want you dead in my life now. So he divided his property between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and went off looking for love in all the wrong places, traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now watch this. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Please don't miss this story. You may think you know this story completely, but watch it one more time. And they sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was so hungry that he gladly would have eaten pig food, but they wouldn't even give him that. It's about identity. You go looking outside of the father's relationship for identity and you get treated worse than a pig. He gladly would have filled himself but no one would even give him the pig food. But watch this, but he came to himself. It's, it's a story of identity. He came to himself and said, what am I doing here? How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and despair? But here I am, dying of hunger. He didn't come fully to himself because this long winding road called Christian salvation and spirituality is a step-by-step, many-layered, many-chaptered process. He didn't come to himself and say, I'm a son, I deserve to go home. He came to himself and said, I've got a father that's good to his slaves. And maybe he will do that for me. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. And because of performance, I have bought the lie that I've learned on the far country journey. I've bought the lie that drove me from home in the first place. I have sinned against you and based upon my performance, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, it's all about performance. A father had two sons. And this boy said, based upon my performance, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I am worthy, possibly, do your morality to be called a hired hand and a slave. So he set off and he went to his father. He never did quit calling the man his father. 
As Philip Yancey said, I know God loves me. I just never could believe that he actually liked me. God has to love me because of his character, but because of mine, he can't possibly like me. And I'll go to him and I'll say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. And while he was still a far way off, he was rehearsing. When I get there on the doorstep, I'm going to knock on the door. He's going to open it. The chain's still going to be on. I'm going to stick my foot in the door. And he's going to say, what are you doing here? And I'm going to say, please hear me. Just make me a slave. Based on my performance, I know I'm not your son any longer. And as he was rehearsing that, the Bible said he looked up and here come an old man. And the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. No sacrifice was needed. The sacrifice was the sacrifice of a father's woundedness. And grace by its very nature is abusable. If you don't believe that, have children. And the father fell on top of him. My son is home. And as he fell on top of him, so he went to his father. But while he was still far away off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. And he ran, put his arms around him, covered him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, see, the story knows the truth. The narrator knows the truth. He was a son, whether he knew it or not. And the son, beneath the blows of his father's love, beneath the beams of his father's love, the son said, I am no longer worthy. I no longer have worth. Why? Because of my performance. I am no longer worthy to be called your child. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring a robe, the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You know what the party of grace is? The party of grace is not what makes you a child of God. You already are a child of God. The party of Christian grace is the celebration that God throws to convince you of who you already are. Do you see this story is not the story of somebody starting a child of the devil and becoming a child of God. The story is somebody who was born a child of God, could not appropriate it, went on a long journey looking for it, and came home. And it was only when in his own brokenness he received the Father and the party of grace that he said, my, my, I didn't just become a child of God. I always was. I never had to leave in the first place. If I would have known that, if I would have appropriated that I would have stayed here always and the Bible says while the party of grace you see that was the party of grace to open the father's heart so that the father might love the boy the party of grace was to convince the boy of what was already true isn't that right watch this there was a man who had two sons now watch and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He's been a lot of things, but I'll tell you what he never, he was dead, he was lost, he was found, he's alive. I'll tell you what he always was, my son. And I looked at my boy and said, you might be dead, you might be living, you might be lost, you might be found, you might be an addict, you might be clean, but I'll tell you what you always are, you're mine. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. 
And he replied, your brother's come and your father's killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. The story started with the Pharisees looking down on the tax collectors and sinners and their proximity to Jesus and Jesus' proximity to them. And the Pharisees said, based on performance, we're children, they're not children. Jesus said, well, it's actually the sick that need the hospital and it's actually the hurting that needs the parent. So you're kind of confusing things here. It's not based on performance. Jesus had two sons. Jesus had two sets of children and one of them was grumbling about the status of the other. And he replied, your brother's come. And verse 28 said he became angry and refused to go into the party. His father came out because that's what the father always does. The father runs down the road for the kid who's been in the brothel in the bar room, and the father runs down the road for the kid who got stuck in the Sunday school class and lost Jesus there. Lots of people lose Jesus in the temple. And his father came out and began to plead with him. It's amazing how God has to plead with some of his children to come to the party for his other children. It's always been the story of God, God trying to talk some of his children into joining the party for his other children. It's the story of the Christian church from the beginning. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been a slave to you. And I've never disobeyed your command. And yet you've never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, not my brother, son of yours comes back who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you're always with me and everything that's mine is yours. There was a man who had two sons. I'll close with this. One year ago in January, I did a message called Lessons Learned from Duck Dynasty when Phil Robertson had made his statements in GQ magazine. And at the end of that series, I showed a video of a man and a woman named Robin Linda Robertson. Do you remember that? Linda Robertson now has a ministry called Just Because They Breathe. It's a ministry. Hold your arm up and show them the tattoo. They got tattoos just because they breathe. It's a ministry that includes the parents, the evangelical traditional parents of children who happen not to be heterosexual. And Robin Linda's story is that like many traditional sincere Christians in their relationship with their son, they had driven him away. And in the estrangement, in the estrangement in those years of estrangement, their son made a tragic mistake, went back to his addiction, and ended up overdosing. And Linda and Rob told their story uh, on our screen last year. And how many days after the overdose did, did their son actually live? It was a couple of weeks, several weeks. And they tended to him and loved him, lay in bed beside him, and would have given their life for him. Last week I had the privilege of being with Linda and Rob in person. And after I had given my talk 
at East Lake Community Church. Linda and Rob gave theirs, and after the service, Linda made a beeline to me, and she said, I need to talk to you. That night at the pastor's home, we spent a long time together. Linda said her greatest wrestling match since the death of her son is not that she feels she had betrayed him and driven him away, but her greatest wrestling match as a traditional evangelical person is she wonders where her son is now. And if because of his poor performance at the end of his life that he, peer adventure, could possibly not be with God. Of all the pain she has gone through for her to have to suffer that pain is an indignity and one that I think is beneath the beauty and the revelation of our religion. But it's where she lived. We talked a little while and I intimated to her, I said, surely God has tried to talk to you about this before. And she said, he has. And she shared with me one of the most painful parts of their journey. And that is in the months before their son died, their boy had done what many kids in their 20s do in circumstances like this. Their boy had written them a letter. This is a part of the story they don't always share because it's too painful. But their boy had written them a letter and he had said to them that they were no longer his parents and that he was no longer their son. Some of you have received a letter like that before and I don't suppose there's a hell hot enough to hurt you worse. But he wrote them a letter and said, I'm done, I hate you. In his pain and in his estrangement on his far country journey, he disowned them as parents and said that he would never be with them again. It was on the heels of that that he binged, fell into a coma, and ultimately died. Linda said one day driving through the Starbucks drive-through, she said, I was calling out to God for the pain of my boy, and I was asking God, oh God, is he with you? And she said, the Lord spoke to her and said, Linda, do you remember that letter? And she said, I cried, yes, but I don't want to. He said, Linda, do you remember how your boy in his hurt and in his brokenness told you that you're no longer his mom, that he's no longer your son? He said, Linda, let me ask you a question. Did it make a difference in how you loved him? Him calling you not his mother, did it make you agree that you were not his mother? Did he in any way become not your son? And she cried out from that line, oh no. How did it make you feel, Linda? It hurt me, it broke my heart, but it made me love him more. And she said the Lord spoke to her and said, Linda, do you think you're a better parent than I am? Do you think you love him more than I do? He is with me. There is nothing he could do, no journey he could take that would make him anything other than mine. And his journey continues, and he is with me. The good news of Christianity is not 
that if you do the right things, you might be one of the lucky ones that become a child of God. The beauty in the gospel of Christianity is far greater. It is that you always have been and always will be a beloved child of God. Now, you want to take a real Christian journey? Take a journey into that belovedness. And when you go deep into that belovedness, you will find peace that passes understanding and you will become an incredibly loving person after you have appropriated your own. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this good day, these good people. Bless them now as your beloved children. May somebody in this room receive the party of grace. May somebody in this room hear the Father's voice. And Lord, for those voices that call us too little, for those voices that say we're less than, may they hear, may these your children hear you through those voices. May they know that they are indeed yours, the beloved daughter of God, who always will be, always has been, and is even now, the one you call mine. Oh, may we live into that belovedness, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Go in God's grace. Pray for us as we head out to tell some folks in prison that they are the beloved children of God. Amen. God bless you.